Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows queer people aren't scary because we're queer, but we might be scary because we're vampires. Um, Today we have Julia, Zoe, Bianca, and Kellen. And today we are wrapping up Spooky Season with an episode about queerness in horror movies. Uh, This is one of my favorite topics and something I know a lot of us on the pod spend a lot of time thinking about, so we're very excited about this. Um, We also have an amazing recurring guest with us and resident movie expert of the Season of the Bitch Discord, Genevieve. Do you want to introduce yourself for anyone who may not have heard your earlier episode, which if you have not, you should go listen to that also because it's great. I love the number of shameless plugs in that intro. That was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to learn from you, like plugging our other content. <laughs> um, yeah. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go do that. Um, I am a current PhD student at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I'm working on research in the realm of horror. Uh, I do work that I would kind of call transmedial bodies, which is just a really fancy way of talking about how race, class, gender, queerness, disability, et cetera, interact with media um, kind of across medium. So I do film, TV, video games, web series, that kind of thing. Um, I've published a bit, uh, one piece in Studies in the Fantastic on zombies and eco-criticism in video games, Um, some pieces of queer theory about the Wachowski sisters' work, so not technically horror, but we'll let it slide, Um, and a few other small things, all academic, so unfortunately, behind big, scary, evil paywalls. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. So I wanted to start us off with one of my favorite essays about horror, which is called Monster Culture by Jeffrey Cohen. Um, It's an essay about a bunch of different ways of understanding monsters that have to do with the culture that's created those monsters. Um, He's primarily writing about mainstream Western culture, but I think one of the cool things about this essay is that it has a lot to say about other cultures as well. Um, Cohen is sort of trying to create these rules that we can use to interpret any scary story we might come across in any culture, which is a big task. Um, But I think as we've seen more recently with the breakdown of sort of stricter media hierarchies, there are some horror movies that don't just come out of these very narrow dominant cultural norms, like just purely the most mainstream Western culture. Um, We see a lot more marginalized people being able to create their own media um, and in mainstream media at least being represented. Um, And I think this essay has interesting things to say about horror that comes out of more marginalized Western cultures as well, um, as well as non-Western cultures. So a bit from this essay that I think is particularly related to queerness and horror, Cohen writes, quote, fear of the monster is really a kind of desire. The monster is continually linked to forbidden practices in order to normalize and to enforce. The monster also attracts. The same creatures who terrify can evoke potent escapist fantasies. The linking of monstrosity with the forbidden makes the monster all the more appealing as a temporary egress from constraint. So I really like this idea that monsters and horror villains in general can be both attractive and repulsive at the same time. Um, Much like a lot of homophobic straight people or people who don't realize they're queer yet might view queerness as something that's both has this attraction, but also this thing that's pushing you away. Um, And this idea also helps me personally understand why we're able to see queer icons in horror characters like the Babadook. Um, Even when these characters are written to be evil or scary, there's often just this element of disobedience or theatricality or just having a very strong independent personality that goes against mainstream social norms that can be very attractive. especially to queer people and leftists who might see things that they really don't like in mainstream society and culture. Um, And to me, this is part of why it's possible for queer folks to have alternative readings of certain horror films that on the face of them might have kind of problematic or unrealistic depictions of queer people um, or show us as monsters. Sometimes this quote unquote monster might be the good guy or be able to be interpreted as the good guy or might just be the most relatable character in the film, whether the filmmaker intended it that way or not. Um, 
So this is a framework that I really like to use when I'm thinking about queerness in horror. Um, and Genevieve, I wanted to ask you if there's anything you want to share about different frameworks that you like for thinking about queerness in horror movies. Yes, this is one of my favorite things um, because I am very like theory heavy in my writing. Um, so there are a few things. First, just kind of thinking about what you just said. I actually um, kind of want to talk about uh, Julia Kristeva and abjection. I think I got into this in the last episode that I did with y'all, but it's worth repeating. Um, so the abject for Kristeva has to do with this like notion of being repulsive and attractive at the same time, right? Mm. It's, it's all tied up in bodily fluids. It's tied up in viscera. Um, she's coming to it from a psychoanalytic lens. So it's, it gets into some tricky places in terms of gender, um, that I don't love, but, um, I think it's a really interesting framework in that what she's doing is, trying to define or theorize these kind of visceral reactions that we have to literal viscera, right? I mean, I think that's really cool. But in terms of like just specifically queerness, um, I have like recently been working a lot with Lauren Berlant's work in um, Cruel Optimism as it relates to queer read lesbian vampires, but that's in another episode entirely. And if I might say so, you all did a fantastic job unpacking some of those kind of related concepts. So I'm not going to rehash there. Oh, thank um, you so much. Yeah, no, <laughs> I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I'm actually working with her work right now on Carmilla. So there you go. Um, but otherwise, I use a lot of Lee Edelman's work when I'm dealing with monstrosity and specifically anti-futurity. So I do a ton of writing on how time is a fundamental element of marginalization in horror media. And I've come to this kind of idea that maybe futurity isn't where it's at. Maybe instead we should be putting our efforts towards making now livable for people without having to rely on a fantasy future population for whom to fight, right? I mean, and I come to this as a leftist, as a feminist. Um, and then my work kind of springs out from there. So to that end, um, probably my favorite Edelman quote is, um, such queerness proposes in place of the good something I want to call better, though it promises in more than one sense of the word, absolutely nothing, right? So he's saying we can fight for better, we can try to do better by ourselves and by others and by our communities without creating this, and he's primarily talking about the cult of the child, but without creating this like symbolic child or symbolic future, we can do it for now, right? I, I find a lot of um, inspiration in that, even if it's not always the most um, optimistic. I, I think that the pragmatism of it, especially in relation to horror and in relation to kind of rejecting this futurist notion and instead living in the now living in this visceral moment I think is really really powerful yeah I love that I also feel like that has some really cool resonance for like thinking about horror movies themselves and kind of how we're constantly trying to do better with queer representation and more realistic and like affirming queer characters um I think that's like a cool framework to think about that also um all right, so I wanted to ask everyone if you have any like early experiences of seeing queerness depicted in media, um, and especially like if you have any memories of seeing it tied to characters who were scary or evil in some way, because I feel like this can be a really pervasive sort of theme that like queer characters are related to horror or danger. Um, yeah, so I'm just curious if other people have experiences of seeing things like that while you were growing up. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, this is not horror, but um, it was supposed to be scary. Like the villains mm -hmm. in Disney movies, obviously, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, are like famously queer coded. Um, so like the ones that were my favorites um, were like Hades from Hercules and Scar from The Lion King. 
Also, speaking of queer stuff, Meg from Hercules, huge childhood crush at any rate. Um, so true. So huge. <laughs> um, really classic, do I want to be her or do I want her situation? This is, we're really devolving past the point of what I wanted to talk about, which is <laughs> Disney villains. Um, but like, like you sort of, or like, you know, like we've talked about before um, on previous episodes where we talked about the, the queer codedness of Disney villains, a lot of them end up becoming kind of like queer icons as well. So like a lot of times these queer coded Disney villains um, have a, incredible songs. Like I'm thinking of Scar's Be Prepared um, and Ursula's character design from Little Mermaid was famously based on the drag queen divine. Um, I know Ursula's songs are performed in drag shows in like a very empowering way. And I do want to plug, it's not a drag performance, but Titus Burgess has an incredible cover of Ursula's Poor Unfortunate Souls. So I feel like villainy has long been queer coded in these sort of classic films um, and classic media, but also queer people have long turned those negative portrayals on their heads and claimed villains as like these incredible, sometimes misunderstood queer icons. Yeah, totally. I think that's really interesting. And another thing with the Disney villains is that I always like related to them because aside from the queer coding, there's like such a like not coding, just, like, gothness to the villains, that I was always like, the villains are so cool, the princesses are fucking losers, um, which is very me as a child, um, <laughs> sorry to all the true. princess lovers, <laughs> but I also, okay, I really want to plug Maleficent, the 2019 one mm. is so good, I am, like, staunchly anti-Disney, I hate it, um, but Maleficent 2019 rips, I relate so much. The subject, it's like Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. And I immediately was like, this is for me. <laughs> um, and I love it because it really does flip it in that way that Kellen was saying, kind of, where, like, in the end, you see how she was really misunderstood and she actually was, like, trying to do the right thing. And um, she turns into a phoenix. And honestly, beautiful movie through and through. Um, which also really reminds me of one of the scariest movies to me as a child was Wizard of Oz. Um, oh my god, same. Argue, same. yeah, a similar queer cutting though for for the Wicked Witch, right? Of this like, I mean, I think a lot of witches are queer coded, and especially mm -hmm. the kind of depiction of like an older like single female witch. Um, and there's a similar thing, right, with Wicked, where that was like this recreation of like. Girl just wanted her fucking shoes back. Like, <laughs> she just wanted her, like, dead sister's shoes. Um, but yeah, I can't really, like, I didn't really watch scary things when I was a child because I was a child who was terrified of The Wizard of Oz. Um, I think The Wizard <laughs> of Oz is, like, intended to be scary for children, though. I mean, it is a yeah. scary movie. Is it, yeah. It's definitely a morality it. tale. I'm, like, deeply scarred by it because it, it terrified me and it was my best friend's favorite movie. And so, like, she made me watch it all the time. And it's, it is, we're still friends. We've been friends since we were Aww. two. And it is still a point of contention for the friendship. Aww. <laughs> yeah, on that point that you were talking about with the Wicked Witch also, I feel like there is this thing that can come up both in, like, things that are meant to be scary for children and more like adult horror where it's like the villain is just super obsessed with the character who's supposed to be the hero in a way that can often be sort of queer or queer coded like it's this you know witch who's a woman who's obsessed with mm. this like beautiful girl who like embodies all these themes of pureness and stuff mm. and it's like mm. kind of this like same gender relationship exactly yeah. um yeah, so I, I definitely think that falls the into the category. And Dorothy. And Dorothy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's an essay to be written here, for sure. <laughs> there is, and it uses Lauren Berlant. I'm, I'm just saying, she's all about, like, weird, like, different kinds of uh, toxic attachments. So I, I was, I, I'm sorry, I was literally working on this, like, two minutes ago. So timely. Awesome. <laughs> Yes. Um, Genevieve, did you want to talk at all about early experiences of queerness in horror or scary movies? Yeah, sure. Um, so 
My first, okay, so I was also a terrified child. Um, I remember seeing the stuff when I was a very, very young kid, and it completely fucked me up. Um, I could not watch anything even remotely scary after that. It's not a good film. It's a terrible film. Um, it's this weird sci-fi horror, but beside the point. Um, so really my first like awareness came about with um, Silence of the Lambs because my mom had it on. Um, and she, I don't remember how she handled Buffalo Bill in that. We're going to get to this, I'm sure, when we talk a little bit more about the history of queerness and horror, but I have no memory of how she handled it. I just remember it being like weird and confusing um, at the time. And then at the point where I was kind of coming into my own as a queer person and like understanding that as a political identity and understanding myself as a leftist, it was, um, and this is baby leftist, so don't give me shit, um, American Horror Story Asylum um, and the way that like that dealt with queer women and like psychotherapy was really interesting and terrifying and really kind of galvanizing for me. Mm. Yeah, totally. Um, so let's let's jump into some of the history of queerness in horror movies. Um, and anyone else can feel free to jump in if you want to add to this. Um, this is going to be a bit of a rant, but I think it will give us some important context for the rest of what we're going to talk about today. Um, so in our first few episodes of Spooky Season, we talked a lot about gothic literature, especially in our episodes on vampires and witches. Um, so this was a popular horror genre in the late 1700s and 1800s. And some of the first horror movies in the US were very much an extension of this trend. A lot of them were actually based on gothic novels like Frankenstein, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dracula, um, Edgar Allan Poe stories. And like we talked about, those narratives could involve a lot of violence towards women and gender non-conforming people and queer people, but they could also sometimes be ways for marginalized writers to kind of sneak in some critique of patriarchy and enforced heterosexuality into these types of scary stories. Um, but in the 1920s, there started to be all of this public concern, essentially like a moral panic of the time that movies were largely immoral and that they were exposing Americans to all of these dangerous ideas about violence and sexuality. Um, there were several high profile incidents at the time where people involved in Hollywood, either actors or directors or other folks involved in the industry um, were killed or died of drug overdoses. Um, and these were very heavily publicized and added to people sort of freaking out about this idea. Um, one of these murders was of a director named William Desmond Taylor, who was possibly bisexual. Um, it's not totally clear, but he definitely left his wife and family um, without really telling them where he was going to pursue a career in Hollywood. And this came out after he died. So there were all these concerns about how Hollywood was not just spreading dangerous ideas in the cultural realm, but actually causing people in their real lives to stop following traditional family structures and break out of certain social norms. Um, so they instated this set of rules um, called the Hayes Code, which people may have heard of. This started in 1934 and it basically made it so they couldn't depict anything considered immoral. This included things like interracial romance, any sort of drugs, interestingly revenge plots of any kind, which I think is kind of interesting when we consider how a lot of horror movies that center women and queer people involve revenge plots of some sort. Um, and one of the rules in revenge the Hayes Revenge is a feminist icon. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's like, you know, if society tends to oppress you, you're probably going to want to get revenge of some form. Um, so maybe that's what they were thinking of when they made that rule. I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, so one of the, the rules that they had was Quote, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin, unquote. 
So, you know, that just sounds gross to me. Yeah, completely also the opposite of the SOTB ethos, which is, of course, be gay, do crime. Right, exactly. And it's like, what is crime? What is wrongdoing? What is sin? Mm. Like, who's making these rules? They're obviously being set by, like, the people who have the most power and wealth in this industry. Um, But what this basically ended up meaning was that horror films at the time couldn't depict anything that was explicitly considered queer because that was obviously considered sinful, but they could sort of imply queerness in characters who were being depicted as the villain because that would make sure that you didn't, you wouldn't be on the side of queerness, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's evil. Um, And these rules didn't end until 1968. So one example of a film from this era that people might've heard of is Psycho, which is a Hitchcock film came out in 1960 um, and I guess kind of spoiler alert it's about a serial killer named Norman Bates who dresses up in his mom's clothes before he kills people I say it's only kind of a spoiler because I feel like that's only like an important central plot point if you consider trans feminine people uniquely scary which I don't but anyway um, so in 1968 Full take Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just really, really going straight to the hot takes here. (laughs) But, you know, this was like, I feel like the reason it's a reveal in the movie is because it's supposed to be really scary, which is so whack. But anyway, in 1968, they finally got rid of the Hays Code and that was replaced with the movie rating system that we have today. Um, So the like GR, everything everyone knows about. Um, This technically meant that horror movies were no longer required to depict queerness as evil, but in practice, as we all probably know, this didn't really mean that they stopped doing so entirely. Um, Some examples that I wanted to bring up specifically from the 80s and 90s include Dress to Kill, Sleepaway Camp, and Silence of the Lambs, um, which you mentioned before, Genevieve. And all of these feature gender non-conforming characters as the villains. And specifically, I think it's important that their gender queerness is a central part of what makes them evil. So it's not like they just happen to be trans and they're a killer. Um, In Silence of the Lambs, for example, the villain kills women and then skins them to wear their skin like a human woman suit after being denied gender confirming surgery. Um, so it's very clearly like their gender queerness is linked to what's causing them to do evil. Um, another example is this movie from 1980 called Cruising, which was one of the first movies to ever be protested by queer rights groups. Uh, this was about a serial killer who kills gay men in the West Village and this supposedly straight police officer who has to go undercover and infiltrate New York's queer BDSM community in order to catch the killer. And he maybe discovers some things about his own sexuality along the way. That's not totally clear in the movie, but I definitely think it can be read that way. Um, Even though these movies were in a lot of ways very harmful to queer people, at the same time, because these types of movies no longer had to be hiding their subject matter, horror and thriller movies like these actually had some of the most explicit depictions of queer sex and sexuality and queer lives even though they were often depicted very negatively or at least were intended to be. Um, So some queer critics have said that movies like these actually help them come out or they've just had alternative readings of them where they feel like it's possible to watch these movies and enjoy them, either in kind of a campy way because some of them are just so over the top in condemning queerness, kind of like how Reefer Madness is a cult classic now. Um, And then also some people have a way of viewing them that's genuinely finding some positive aspects in the way that queerness is portrayed in these films. Um, So there has been sort of some reclaiming of some of these movies um, in more recent years. Yeah, I found all of that so interesting. Um, I've never seen any of the movies that we've mentioned. (laughs) I'm like (laughs) notoriously known among my friends as the person who has not seen any movies. (laughs) Like I am not like against movies. I just like haven't watched. So I have, I don't know. I feel like I want to watch Bianca's anti movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I also think some of these are just like not worth watching. So it's like, you're not missing. Right. I was like, I don't know. Some of these you just described were like, oh, queerness was determined to be evil. I don't know if I want to be spending my time watching that. I don't know. Right. Um, But what I was going to say is like, 
Um, all of what you just said makes me think about just like art and subversiveness more generally. Like a lot of what you discussed about the earlier films, like used queerness as itself a way to be subversive. And I think that subversiveness can either like be presented as a good or a bad thing, like depending on the angle of the film. Like if there's a villain in a horror film specifically, or if there's a villain in a horror film and like they're depicted to be a villain specifically because they are queer and or trans or there's like a suggestion that there is a queer or a transness about them then that's kind of bad because it suggests that queerness or transness are like horrific qualities in some way which is like obviously not true but I also mm -hmm. think that there are movies where like queerness is presented in a subversive way but in a way that like is more radical or going against the grain without problematizing it so I think like there's like so many different ways to sort of like go against the grain but like um if like politics or like the culture of the era like dictates that queerness is harmful then that can be kind of dangerous like I can't think of any horror films right now that kind of like present queerness as like a radical thing but like Moonlight or like the Watermelon Woman which is a, like a film that I recently watched um, so good. It's so good. And like, but I think both of those are like very clear examples of like queerness as subversiveness, but not in a problematic way. Yeah, um, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I think I guess one example that comes to mind for me that's more of a horror movie that is also a little bit older is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, so that came out in 1975. And it was definitely an early movie to kind of like subvert some of these tropes where even though on the face of it you could maybe interpret it as like the characters presented as the heroes are this straight couple who's then basically seduced by a bunch of aliens slash mad scientists um and like specifically into queerness and transness but it's so over the top, like the straight characters literally get engaged in the first scene of the movie and all of their songs are about how like straight they are. Um, and they're just so clueless and so like over the top in their extreme fear of queerness that it makes it very hard to not read the mad scientist slash alien Dr. Frankenfurter as the hero because he's just like the most relatable character in the film. Like you understand his motivations way more than you do these really like over the top, just like campy straight people. Um, and that to me is kind of an example of using it in a more subversive way where it's like, it's not necessarily that the character's queerness or transness makes them evil. And in fact, they might not even be that evil. Like their actions might be sort of understandable. Um, Genevieve, I don't know if you wanted to talk any more about some of these other films um, yeah. that you had mentioned here and like how how this kind of fits into the overall trend of queerness within the horror genre. Well, yeah. So um, a couple of things. Also, I just wanted to add, you make some excellent points about the Hays Code, but the other thing that comes up with the Hays Code is that... Um, it disallowed anything that could be described as horror. So that mm. becomes relevant when we look at some of these older pieces. Um, I'm thinking like Rebecca, Lady Diabolique, The Vampire Lovers, uh, Dr. Jekyll, Jekyll and Sister Hyde, um, and The Daughters of Darkness, which are all up through 71. Um, so some of them are post-haze, but only barely. Um, they're doing interesting things in terms of being suggestive, both with their horror and with their queerness, right? Um, and I think the interesting like historical shift that we get between the seventies and the eighties, specifically looking at queerness, because this doesn't happen in every realm in horror. Um, if we think about like race, then we're looking at 68 with uh, night of the living dead as like a, a flashpoint. But I think that the, the like 75 ish realm is a good break point between this, like, construction of queerness where it's all about the representation versus construction of queerness where it's actually trying to do something if that makes sense that's really interesting and then that's also the year that rocky horror came out yeah that's that's kind of why i mark it there mm -hmm. um 
Because like, if we look at something like Rebecca, which by the way, the new Netflix, um, I am not all the way, all the way through the new Netflix version. So no spoilers, please. <laughs> um, but the original, the Hitchcock Rebe- Rebecca um, is 1940. And that's all about representing this like star-crossed, maybe kind of sort of lesbian relationship um, that is coded as abnormal, but it's an important queer film because there's nothing like it really at the time, right? Um, the same with a lot of the other ones that I mentioned, but then when we get to um, 75 with Rocky Horror and then later 85 with Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which there is an excellent documentary on Shudder, Scream Queen, um, that gets into the production and history of that. Um, but that, and then also Hellraiser, um, we get into this other like historical period where we're starting to see queerness mobilized in a political way. And then that picks up even more in the 90s, like around 94 with new queer cinema, which a lot of that is specifically like horror or borderline horror. So Heavenly Creatures, Sister My Sister, Je Pas which is just French for I Can't Sleep. Um, all of these are kind of around the same period. And so we've got this like periodization of queerness specifically in horror that doesn't necessarily line up with other periodizations of horror um, in really interesting ways. Mm, that's super interesting. Yeah, it sounds like sort of there was this break between like the time when essentially queerness and horror itself could not necessarily be explicitly represented. And then as that started to be something that can be represented in film, it's kind of like we're getting closer to like actual thoughtful representations of queerness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that works really well moving us into modern queer horror. Um, So we have two specific movies that we want to talk about um, in more detail. Um, But just as a bit of an overview, I guess for me, there's sort of two main types of movies that I feel like I've encountered within more modern, like past 15, 20 years or so of queer horror. Um, So the first is horror movies that deal very deeply with queer themes, um, like secrecy, oppression, finding community, despite feeling like an outcast. these sort of like important themes that are specifically often very important in queer and trans life. Um, These movies don't always involve explicitly queer characters, but they at least imply that their main characters feel something deviant or out of the norm in their sexuality or gender. And that defines a lot of how they relate to the world. Um, One example of this to me is this French movie, Raw from 2017, which I love. I highly recommend this movie. Um, It's really well made. The main character is not explicitly queer. Um, The only sex that we see her have in the movie is with her best friend, who's a gay man. So that's sort of queer, but she might be straight. But just the way the movie deals with her concerns and fears around her sexuality being dangerous or harmful to her community feels like it has a lot of resonance resonance for me to ways that I've felt about my sexuality as a queer person um, and the sort of conclusions that it comes to or uh, sort of solutions that it comes to feel very resonant to me as well. Um, And then I think when these movies do have explicitly queer characters, they can be even stronger in really making a statement about queer life through a lens of what is uniquely scary to queer people, which I think we will talk about in a little bit with Thelma, which is one of my favorite examples of this type of movie. I think this has also become pretty common in horror TV shows. Um, Some examples that come to mind are The Haunting of Hill House and Killing Eve, which is more of a thriller, but has horror elements for sure. Um, Both of these shows are excellent and have explicitly queer characters in them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you brought up Killing Eve, which stars Jodie Comer, my wife, um, (laughs) and the incredible, amazing Sandra Oh, who also is my wife. Yeah. I I will watch anything with Sandra Oh. She's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Choice. Yeah. I love how Kellen's role in this episode is like glamorously sitting there in her silk robe and just popping in to be like, got a crush. Talking about (laughs) who her wives are. (laughs) Got a lot of wives. 
Love that. That is perfectly valid. That is how to watch horror. I think I bring a lot to Season of the Bitch in general, you know, like the just jumping in, talking about wives. Somebody has to do it, and I am willing to take on that burden. Taking one for the team. Right, exactly. So um, one other example of this that I really love and have to plug is The Perfection from 2019, which is a queer love story. And I will leave it at that because I think this movie is best watched with as little context as possible before you see it. Um, But it also stars another two of our wives, Logan Browning and Allison Williams. Um, Oh, Allison Williams, my other wife. Oh my god, Best, creepiest. Oh my God. Seeing her in Get Out just shook me to my heart. Yeah. Oh, she was so good in that too. Um, I love how Julia said our wives because this is a polycule. Communism. Right. Yes. (laughs) Our collectivized wives. I suffered through two seasons of Girls just so I could watch Alice. Oh my gosh, same, same. I was going to say the exact same thing. I'm watching (laughs) Grey's Anatomy right now, like purely because of Sandra Oh, so I can really relate to that. Yeah. (laughs) No one else was interesting to me in that show. It's so true, yeah. Um. But yeah, okay, so then the second sort of broad type of queer horror movies that I feel like I've seen more recently are ones that have queer characters, but the movie isn't really like thematically about queerness at all. It's just sort of like, this character is gay, but that's not really important to the plot. Um, A classic recent example to me is Fantasy Island, which was the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic. Um, This was like a typical blockbuster horror film. Critics hated it, but audiences loved it or at least spent a lot of money to see it. Um, And it has like five or six main characters, one of whom is gay, but it's not important to the plot at all, which I think in some cases can be really cool. Like we should be able to have marginalized characters in these sort of, you know, silly, just like blockbuster horror movies in which none of the characters are very deep, but it's nice to just like see yourself in this really fun over the top type of movie. Um, and the gay character is also a huge stoner. So if that feels resonant to you, I highly recommend you check it out. It's just very silly and fun. Um, but I think one of the more serious kind of critically acclaimed type of examples of this that I've seen is the next movie we're going to get into in a little more detail, which is what keeps you alive. Um, and I think Genevieve is going to start us off with some thoughts about this very, um, I don't know, just like intense and intense is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really interesting film. Yeah. So before we go any further though, I do want to give a quick spoiler warning. Um, there is a huge plot event roughly 25 minutes into the film that you kind of like, if you want to experience it in its quote, purest form, whatever that means for you. Um, I would pause here, go watch the movie come back at least the first 25 minutes of the you'll movie, know and then come you back there. you'll yeah, know yeah. you'll know you will, <laughs> you'll know exactly what we're talking about um but i just i want to give people the opportunity to go do that if they like so choose yeah um but the kind of quick rundown of the story it's 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 fairly familiar it's a black widow story um so a married lesbian couple on their first anniversary go to one of the women's Jackie's secluded cabin in the woods. Great place to be, right? Like this is, you know, Classic you're in a horror location. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then a little while into their trip, Jackie pushes her wife, Jules, off the side of a cliff rather unexpectedly. Extremely um, there's unexpected. no setup. There's no <laughs> yeah. setup. They're just Jules is just standing there admiring the view, and Jackie's like ah, and pushes her. It's great. I mean, it's 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 horrifying, but it's great if you're a horror fan. I mean, if you're not, then I can only imagine. But um, the rest of the film is a cat and mouse chase with both of the women trying to kill each other for obvious reasons. Because if you just tried to kill your wife. You kind of have to finish the job. And if your wife just tried to kill you, you kind of have to not die. Um, there is a fantastic rowboat chase scene, which sounds bonkers. And let me tell you, it is. Um, and it ends with Jackie definitely dead. And Jules maybe dead, maybe not lying at the base of another cliff that she's been pushed off of. Um, and we just aren't sure. So 
that is the plot summary as best I'm going to give it. Um, strongly recommend watching the film, if for no other reason than it is beautifully shot. I mean, it's just gorgeous Toronto wilderness. It is. Also, um, it's on Netflix. I don't know if that... It's on Netflix. It is on Netflix. Yeah. I watched it, like, paid money for it the first time I saw it um, and was not displeased. But it is for free on Netflix in air quotes right now. So, um, in terms of, like, kind of thinking through this very, like, intense, very dramatic film, though, I think the main point that comes up kind of casually again and again is this idea that the film's villain, Jackie, is psychotic or, quote, at least a sociopath, as one podcaster who shall remain nameless put it. Um, The problem with this kind of dates back far into our collective psyche, if we want to call it that, um, in terms of lesbianism and monstrosity and horror. Um, I can talk a little bit about this, but a few good texts to look into are Tracking the Vampire by Sue Ellen Case and Monsters in the Closet by Harry Benshoff. Um, So queerness of any kind and especially lesbianism because of women's relationship in psychology to early definitions of hysteria is deeply entrenched in stigma surrounding mental illness, um, which was like kind of fueled by the fact that lesbianism was itself considered a mental illness in the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, which is where we get clinical definitions until very recently, I want to say 1973. Um, So until the early 70s, it was considered uh, mentally unstable to be attracted to your same gender, not to mention the myriad ways that the DSM mishandled and demonized trans and non-binary identity. So to kind of fall back on this, well, she must be unstable explanation, while it is perhaps comforting to those who can't fathom this kind of abuse as the director seems to, um, or seems not to be able to, um, it's particularly damaging, I think, both to queer communities and to like this, the way that they intersect with disability communities. just because it's it's relying on these tropes in a way that's really not okay, right? Especially when we think like psychosis and sociopathy are actually like literally clinical definitions and we can feel how we want about them. But I think the first step is to move it out of the realm of like casual discourse and back into the realm of this actually, these words mean things and they're not just all about what they mean in the stigmatized sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think like for me, this movie is definitely part of this trend of media that I was talking about that's basically like, yeah, they're queer, but it's not an important part of who they are. Um, I learned in my research that this actually, this movie was originally written to be a straight couple, and then they didn't change that much of the writing once it became a queer couple. So I think on the one hand, that is kind of a cool idea, because it's like, they didn't like radically rewrite it to just like have them, all their dialogue be about how they're gay, which obviously wouldn't be realistic. um, And their queerness doesn't define who they are as people. But then on the other hand, it's like, there would be parts of their lives that would be different because they're queer and that's not really addressed. Um, I felt like there were things that this movie didn't explore just about how this queer relationship would be. Um, One kind of small example, like a big part of the plot hinges on a life insurance policy. And Jackie says that she like took out a life insurance policy and then her plan is like to kill Jules and get the money. But there's really no mention of the fact that it would probably be a lot harder and take a lot more convincing for a queer woman to collect life insurance benefits on her partner than it would for a straight woman. Like, I'm just assuming the investigators for the insurance company or whoever would, like, be more suspicious if it's a queer woman. Um, And that's, like, a small part of the movie, but I just feel like it's an example of how this movie was sort of limited in what it could say specifically about queerness, because it wasn't really interested in exploring queerness beyond this very like superficial level. 
Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. She also mentions that, like, she had done this before. So if it's hard enough as a queer woman yeah. to collect life insurance the first time, I'm right. going to venture yeah, a guess times. it's <laughs> going to be really hard a second or third time. <laughs> right, especially before gay marriage was legal, which presumably some of this happened before that. I don't know. Yeah, it just seemed like they didn't get into that at all. Well, it's in yeah. Canada, so we've got a different timeline there. Okay, but that's yeah, fair. Point that's taken. Fair. Yeah. Um, no, that's, I mean, that's a great point. Um, another podcast that covered this is the Bloody Disgusting one, which they have a queer horror podcast that's specifically devoted to this. So, um, if you're interested, I'm not going to plug them, but I will mention them. Um, just listen to season of the season of the bitch. Why are you listening to anything else? If you listen to any <laughs> so other true. podcast, get out of here. <laughs> we don't believe in, we only believe in podcast monogamy. Not yes, romantic, yes, exactly. monogamy, romantic just podcast monogamy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, they they pointed out, I think rightly, that having queer characters changes nothing and at the same time changes everything about the story, right? Like even just this example of how much harder would it be just the first time to convince investigators that you didn't kill your wife because you're an evil lesbian, like, let alone that I think there's a thing with the lockets. I think she finds four other lockets. At yeah, one I, think I like, right. wasn't detail. sure what that was. I was a little confused. I couldn't yeah. tell what it was that she found. Yeah, they were lockets exactly like the one that she had been given, that Jules had been given by Jackie. Uh, um, and I think that there are four in the box that she finds. So that makes her. Yeah. The yeah. Is she yeah. like a vampire? I'd have. Like how old is she supposed to be? And like, oh my right, god, that's a great like, my, my thought was like, how how many how uh long was she like married or in the relationship with these people? Right, because she plays a long game. Like they date enough to get married, and then it's the first anniversary. I know. Like, and I'm like, I don't think Jules would be like, oh, well, I don't know, but like, I I assume that they had like courted each other, built yeah. up the relationship over time. So I was like, oh my gosh, subplot. Jackie's a vampire. I mean. Her first kill, though, they talk about her friend. Is it Jennifer or Jen? Yeah, I think, or Jenny? I think Jenny. Jenny. Yeah. Jenny. Um, yeah. When they're when they're Kids. much younger, yeah, like sixteen. So well, that's even her first before that, human there was, kill. Yeah, because there's like some weird shit with a bear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. So I guess she's been doing it for a while, but still, she like fit in a lot of murders into. Yeah, no, for sure. Impressive, honestly. Yeah, so I just, I think that (laughs) she works fast. I mean, (laughs) Um, but the, the, the kind of oppression that we see enacted against and within queer relationships can slash should slash does color the ways that those relationships work a lot of the time. Maybe not all the time, but a lot of the time, right? Because at the point where you're walking down the street holding hands and you get slurs shouted at you, you might expect, at least in a movie, to be able to see like a deeper connection. You know, there's a certain degree of adversity that I think maybe changes the way that we relate to each other. This is why queer community is so important, because there's something unique about facing that in the world just as a constant baseline right um and so this is like where I think that the more interesting analysis of this film is has more to do like less to do with the mental illness side of it and sorry has less to do with the mental illness side of it and more to do with the um the abuse like the potential abuse reading of it Um, If that makes sense, because at the very least, Jackie lies pretty profoundly about herself and her emotional investment right from the very beginning of the relationship, especially if she's moving as fast as we think that she is, right? Um, And I wonder about how the film might have, if written even slightly differently, opened up a discourse about women and abuse of all kinds, Um, One of the things that I love about horror is its ability to get to the core of a social anxiety. And I think this film, 
with all of its beautiful cinematography. And it really is just amazing to look at. Um, and fabulous performances could have done that a lot better. Um, so I would say it's still a good film, but it misses a major part of the opportunity afforded to it by horror. And I think that's where uh, Menahan, the director, really does his subject a disservice um, when he claims that these are kind of just normal people like you and me or whatever, which also gets into like this whole conversation about what is or isn't normal because he has said in interviews, like, yeah, I, I wrote this for a man and a woman and I couldn't get the actor that I wanted to play the man. So we just went with a woman. Um, and I didn't really change anything and it doesn't matter and stop talking about it. Right. Very much like, bless his heart George Romero may he rest in peace talking about Dwayne Jones with Night of the Living Dead and the the politics of casting a black man in that era in a major leading role slapping the shit out of a white man on screen like that was a political choice casting this as two women was a political choice I really believe that casting Ripley in Alien as a woman when it was originally written for a man is a political choice um so whether the directors acknowledge it or not this is where I come down on the whole death of the author concept in literary theory right like the idea is we leave the author and their personality out of it and look at the text as it stands. And I don't agree with that 99% of the time until they start saying dumb shit, like, oh, it wasn't intentional at all. You're reading too much into it, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree with everything that's been said so far. And like, as I was watching this movie, I was also noticing this recurrent theme of like Jules learning that Jackie was hiding all of this information from her and then not really knowing how to handle learning this new information. Because like on one hand, it was definitely sort of a betrayal for Jackie to hide all of this stuff from Jules. But I remember this specific scene where like after the like first push off the cliff happens, Jules is like in a lot of pain and she's trying to get back to the house. And like the, the scene keeps like flashing back to like tender moments that the two of them had shared together in the past. Um, and it sort of was like, I think it is sort of reminiscent of certain patterns of abusive relationships because abusers like often are experts at manipulating their victims into thinking that they really love them, which is sometimes why victims have trouble reconciling the harm that the abusers have done to them with the genuinely enjoyable experiences they've shared before. But yeah, like as you mentioned, uh, Genevieve, and as Julia mentioned, I think that like what I just talked about isn't exclusive to queerness. And now like after learning that the couple in the movie was like originally written to be straight, like I think a lot of elements of the movie make more sense now because I also had this sense that there was not really an emphasis on their queerness like at all. Like I think the one like explicitly like queer like mention was the part where Jackie was like yeah like once I like came out or whatever I changed my name from Megan to Jackie it's like that part and like other I, other than that I don't think they really there's like no explicit mentions of them like being a queer couple other than like the fact that like they are um but I don't know maybe this is just like my like maybe relatively naive understanding of like horror movies but I think like in all the horror movies that I've watched a lot of them are very like plot focused where the emphasis is on like the suspense and the creepiness and the gore which stands in contrast with other movies where it seems like the characters and their growth and interaction are at the forefront um so I think like maybe I think there definitely have to be horror movies where there are where there is this huge emphasis on like character growth, character development, character interactions. But I think in this particular movie, it very much seemed to be the case that like, um, it was still very much like a plot driven movie where maybe something that I had wished I had seen a little more were like these like more like deep, um, like character highlights, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I I think that there are, I mean, increasingly horror movies that have that type of like deep character development for queer characters. Um, 
So we wanted to end with one of these movies, um, in my opinion, Thelma. Um, I don't know, Zoe, do you want to start by talking about this? Do you want, I could like do a little plot summary and then we Um, could. Yeah, what? Okay, so you can do the plot summary because my background with Thelma, I love Thelma, but I saw it at a queer film festival in 2017 and I have a horrible memory. So like I remember the basic points and being like, this is great, but I watch things over and over and over again because I do not remember them. So I'm like the opposite of Bianca. Like I've seen everything, but I'm like, couldn't tell you you no memory of it. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Um, And I know, I don't think all of us got a chance to watch this one right before this episode either. So I'll just kick us off with a little bit of plot summary so that we can all talk about it from there. Um, So Thelma is this movie. It came out in 2017. It's Norwegian. um, So subtitles, but I recommend you push through that because it's amazing. Um, So basically this is the story of this young girl named Thelma who's going off to college for the first time. And she's very sort of isolated. Um, She spends all of her time studying. She has a really hard time making friends. And as the movie starts to develop, we sort of realize that she comes from this really strict religious upbringing. And there are all these sort of flashbacks to moments of her childhood where her parents were very repressive and like enforcing these religious norms on her. Um, Like there's a scene where she drinks alcohol for the first time and then she like calls her dad crying and is like, basically, will God forgive me for drinking alcohol? Um, And her dad ultimately is like, yes, that's okay. But also her parents are very strict. Um, And she starts to develop this crush and relationship on her classmate um, who's named Anya. And so she's sort of discovering her queerness. um, But at the same time, all these mysterious things start happening where basically whenever she's with Anja or whenever she has a strong emotion, um, mysterious things will happen. earthquakes, this really intense wind. Um, She seems to have kind of this connection with nature and like natural phenomenon. Um, And at the same time as that happens, she also will have these really intense seizures. Um, So her relationship with Andra develops, um, but at one point um, while she's like having one of these seizures, it's sort of like, she makes Andra disappear um, like completely into empty space um, while she's sort of thinking about like, oh, I wish like this had never happened. I wish I had never met her because it's bringing up all these like things with my religious upbringing. Um, So she's like, oh shit, I have the power to make people disappear. Gotta go home to talk to my parents and figure out what this is about. She finds out that when she was really young, she, again, in a moment of just like split second thought, like, I wish I didn't have a younger brother. She disappeared her younger baby brother from his bed to like under a, like a frozen lake. And so she killed him um, unintentionally because she was also a child. But so ever since that point, her parents have like, repress this power and like I think like at some point it's implied or said that they actually like drugged her in order to make her forget as well but essentially they like never talked about it and made her think that this wasn't real and she didn't have this power um and after this is revealed I I think it's a little bit ambiguous but the way that I interpret it is that like Thelma sort of blames her parents right for like not telling her about this power. And so it's kind of their fault that she disappeared her love interest, Andra, because if she had known about this, maybe she would have been able to control it better. So she gets really mad and kills her dad um, by setting him on fire. But she also heals her mom, who is in a wheelchair, to make her be able to walk. Um, So it's kind of like she does this one like possibly evil thing and one possibly good thing. Um, And then the very end of the movie, we see Anja walking up behind Thelma and it's sort of implied like 
she at least learned to control her power to the extent that she was able to bring Andra back from wherever she had disappeared her to and they're able to be together. Um, so I have definitely heard people interpret this in other ways um, because it's basically implied that her power allows her to cause people to do whatever she wants, right? She can like move them to another place. She can bring them to her if she wants. Um, so some people have interpreted this as kind of like a non-consensual dynamic where like she's able to force Andra to be with her. Um, but I guess I interpret it as like, she didn't realize she was doing that because she didn't know about her powers. And once she does know about her powers, I think she's no longer using them on Andra. I think once she learns how to control them, um, she doesn't intentionally use them on people. So I feel like this is a really good metaphor for queerness, um, in addition to literally being a queer love story, in that her powers are something where the fact that they're repressed and hidden is like what causes the trauma, right? So it's like, it's not queerness itself that's problematic. It's the way her parents repress her and treat her differently because of it and the way society treats her differently because of it that cause her to not really know what she's going through and not be able to deal with it. And if it were just openly talked about and accepted and she could just work through it in like a healthy, normal way, it wouldn't be so bad. And that's kind of what we see at the end is that when she's able to be open about this and really know how to use her powers, it's all good. And she and Andre can be happy and like live happily ever after together, which is a really nice, lovely queer ending. So yeah, that's kind of the like plot summary slash my interpretation of it. But Zoe, do you want to talk more <laughs> about what you like about this movie? Yeah, no, that was a great plot summary. Um, also, yeah, I know we don't have that much time left, but a couple of things that it brought back to me is, um, one, in terms of the analysis, like, so it also is heavily hinted at that her grandmother has the same sort of power that she does, and mm, her yeah. her parents have been keeping her grandmother in a home and essentially, like, sedating her to... Um, keep the power at bay so I think that's also a really interesting thing of this like intergenerational repression um linked to like the religion and her dad being very abusive um the opening of the movie you see her her dad is out with her um essentially you see her dad contemplate whether or not he should like shoot her in the head when they're out hunting together because he knows she has powers and is afraid of them um, I mean, and so I think, like, the the religious metaphors, right, are just, like, ripe for, for these, like, queer plot lines. Um, I often, when I tell people to watch Thelma, say it's, like, a Norwegian carry. There's a lot of similarities in um, being from a really religious household and, like, this demonization of um, everything. <laughs> of everything related uh, yeah, to I queerness and being a woman. That's and... awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... No, it's just such a good movie. It's it's not scary. It's more so like sci-fi. And she does, some would say, gruesomely murder her own father. But he really deserves it. Yeah, I agree. I think he deserved <laughs> it for sure. Um, yeah, so I think that's a great note to end on. Um, <laughs> kill all terrible men because they deserve it. He deserved it. <laughs> um, that's oh that's our take he deserved it Look, he's been <laughs> repressing multiple generations of queer women so yeah no totally i mean like i genuinely that's i think turned to revenge like yes yeah for yes. sure <laughs> feminist icon like, revenge exactly um i do i mean yeah i do just think there's something so great about seeing a queer character get their revenge and there's something very very um cathartic about that um, but yeah, that I think we'll, we'll end there. Um, it has been a wonderful spooky season and I'm really glad that we got to end with this theme. Aww. Um, and thank you so much, Genevieve, for joining us and sharing your wisdom about the queer in horror. Yes, thank, thank you, you so much for having me. It's always so much fun to be on. Oh, yay. Thank you so much for being on.
All right. Well, that was our episode. That was really great. So thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can, con- you can, uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I literally was like, I have this in front of me and I didn't know which one to start with. I was just like, <laughs> I sh- I'm not good with these late night recordings. And by late night, I mean, 9 50 PM. Okay. <laughs> it's late. just going to start. Over. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for listening. That was a really great episode. If you like what you heard, you can give us your money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of bitch. There you can get access to our wonderful discord and you can be a part of our reading group that meets every Sunday. You're also going to get access to uh, limited edition merch that is only available to Patreon subscribers. Can personally vouch that it is awesome. Um, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Um, you can rate and review and subscribe on iTunes. And finally, if you would like, you can send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com and we will definitely read it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely think about reading it. Oh. I will read it. I, I know that with that tone was skeptical, but I promise I'll read it. Okay. <laughs> I, I also, we do have merch for non-Patreon subscribers, which first yes. of all, why? But secondly, we do have <laughs> new merch for non-Patreon. I mean, you can also buy it if, if you're a Patreon If you are not a Patreon member, but you want to give us your money, you still can. Right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is on our website at seasonofthebeat.com slash merch. Gotta plug that merch. Yes. It's so yes. good. I don't know why you wouldn't want it. It is yeah, so good. It includes um, sweaters with Marx's face on them. So, Which like, I'm wearing please. Right now. Uh, wow. It looks so good. Yeah, mine yeah. just came and they, they look amazing. Definitely a good addition to your leftist swag. Yeah. My parents so were out. like, but why does he have a binky? And this was right before we recorded. I was <laughs> why like, don't have time to he have right a now. binky? <laughs> <laughs> have you heard of Marx? Marx famously known for always having a binky? Yeah. (laughs) How could you not know that? (laughs) It's in the Communist Manifesto at the end. He literally is like, I also have a binky. Yeah, he's like, I've been wearing a binky the whole time, or had a binky the whole time I was writing this. (laughs) Yes. I feel like it's like a solid bet that no one has actually read to the very end of the Communist Manifesto. Oh my god. Yeah, that's that's actually why no one knows about it, because they haven't made it to the end. It's on the last page, like if you turn the last page, it's in there. You're right. Go check your copy right now. You're the only ones who have ever made it that far. Yeah, I can't believe it. We're the only people. We make podcasts together now. What a coincidence. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's the prerequisite for being on the podcast. Yeah, Did that's the one. The page of the oh my god. Okay, we have to go. Okay, yeah. Uh, cool. Love you all. Love, Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch. Oh.